In Matthew chapter 27 and in verse 51, we are told uh, as the cross is being described, the events of the cross is being described, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is the moment when Jesus cried, it is finished. And he died and the curtain of the temple uh, was ripped in two from top to bottom. Please bear that in mind as we look at this chapter on the tabernacle which is the forerunner of the temple, which uh, is spoken about there in Matthew. Please don't switch off thinking, this is a dull and boring subject. Uh, What is this all about? All these fine architectural and uh, engineering details that are given to us here in chapter 25 of Exodus. As we've seen, I hope that we've seen over the last few weeks, Uh, as we've looked at this section of the Old Testament and God dealing with His people under the Old Covenant, it's very different from what we enjoy. It's very different from what we know uh, with our New Testament perspective, having seen Jesus Christ and understanding Jesus Christ and knowing about the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit into our hearts and the knowledge of God there. Here we have the Old Testament people for whom none of these things were known and God spoke to them and God declared to them things extremely visually. They are marvelously visual chapters and God was telling them lots of things through vision, through sight, through what they would see every day, what they would experience. And it was for them a very sensual way of uh, understanding their faith in the sense of sensual being used as appealing to their senses. It appeared to, uh, appealed to their sense of vision and sight and hearing and smell often also as they were to understand about God. And, and we have that in this uh, passage. We've spoken about the external emphasis of the Old Testament and of the Old Testament faith. Now, here's a section on the tabernacle we're not going to look at this far too much to look at it all this morning. And it's only one section in a much wider and much broader section where God is giving intimate details to Moses about the way they are to outwork their religion and their faith in God. Please read it. It's great stuff. Particularly of time, read Leviticus chapter 16, which speaks about the Day of Atonement. Wonderful passage visual passage which speaks about the way God is to be approached, the need for for, uh, sacrifice, uh, the shedding of blood, the need for a scapegoat, uh, the need for a representative, and the reality of who God is, and how it all wonderfully uh, dovetails in with Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away uh, the sin of the world. But here is the beginnings of the um, instructions that God gives for the furnishing and for the infilling of the tabernacle, the place where God will dwell in His presence. It's kind of from the inside out that it's working. And really what we have in the tabernacle is something very significant. In verse 8 of this chapter, of chapter 25, God says, uh, in describing why He's going to have a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a dwelling with the people, He says, Then uh, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. That is the core of what God is teaching His people here. That is what they are learning through this building, through this visual 
um, building that is being infilled with different things, that this is where he will be. He will dwell among them in the tabernacle. It's a very important biblical principle. It's called the Emmanuel principle, God with us. And it's very core to our understanding because it's the beginning of the people's understanding of what God has come to do in Christ to restore fellowship with His people that was lost in the beginning, in the sin of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, from Noah to Abraham to the tabernacle to the temple to Jesus, it's all about God working to, to be among you and I again by dealing with the core of our problem and the separation that sin has caused. The whole tabernacling concept. God with His people. John 1 verse 14 says it very importantly. The Word, God, Jesus, became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. And that could be translated, He tabernacled among us. And that's the important principle that is being taught to this Old Testament people here. Or Ephesians 2, verse 22, and in Him, you too, that is us as God's people, are being built together to become a tabernacle, to become a dwelling in which God uh, lives by His Spirit. And it's pointing forward. Yesterday we had a wedding in the church, and I talked about the wedding at the beginning of the Bible and a wedding at the end of the Bible, and the importance of uh, symbolically what that speaks about in terms of relationship. Uh, both human and uh, spiritual, with the church being described as the bride of Christ. Well, also, uh, at the end of the Bible, just at the beginning of the Bible, it talks about tabernacling, about God being with His people in Revelation 21.3. Now, in the new heavens and the new earth, I heard a loud voice from there saying, now is the tabernacle of God, or the dwelling of God with men, and He will live with them. So, if you go right to Revelation You've got what God is saying here to the people in clear form. I have come to be with you. I have come to be among you. I have come to live with you. That's the importance of what God is coming to do. And that's the importance of what God is teaching this Old Testament people in this very visual way. In Exodus 14, verse 34, the Shekinah glory of God comes down onto this tabernacle. He very visually dwells with them. They need to know that. He's not in their hearts in the presence of the Spirit as we have. He's dwelling with His people in this tabernacle. And so we have a very particular design. I'm, I'm only going to go through this quickly. A very particular design which speaks about the character and the nature of God. And we read early on in this passage particularly really from verse 10 to verse 22, about the the holy place that would house the Ark of the Covenant. And a lot is spoken about that holy place in different parts of the, the Old Testament, different parts of Exodus. So, we had the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, with the atonement cover, all made of pure gold, with the laws of God, the tablets of stone inside the Ark of the Covenant. That was in the Holy of Holies. It was to be a a separate place. 
you didn't just walk into the Holy of Holies. You didn't drift into it. It wasn't to be a place where people could access. There was separate, limited access where the high priest came once a year under very special direction to make atonement for his own sin as the representative of the people, to make atonement for their sin as he represented them before God, and to lay the sins of the people on a scapegoat which would be sent out into the desert. Very visual description of what God was doing with their sin and how he couldn't be, uh, their sin needed to be paid for. And their sin was serious. And the cost of restoration was great. So the blood was sprinkled on the atonement cover. Read Le- Leviticus 16. It is so suggestive and so powerful. And God is saying through this visual picture, he's saying, look, I love my people. I've redeemed them. I've brought them out of Egypt. I'm in relationship. I will be with you, he says. I love you. It is a rela- At the core of revelation of the, new, of the Bible is relationship. I will be with you. But at the same time, he's saying, there's a great cost that I want you to understand that I am a holy God And there is a cost to setting you free. There's a cost to your salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You can't can't idly enter into my presence, full of sin and full of careless living. said, there's a very specific way to enter into my presence. And he's saying also to them, look, I am absolutely honest with you. There's no pretense. I am going to be with you, but it is is an intricate relationship. I'm a holy God, and you are utterly sinful. You need to be redeemed, and you need a, a redemptive relationship with me. That is at the core of his revelation. Sacrifice, can I say the sacrifice of Christ is at the core of this chapter because the Holy of Holies points towards the sacrifice of Jesus, the once for all sacrifice, which when he said it is finished, this great 80-foot curtain that was uh, inches thick was ripped in two from top to bottom saying this access to God was now made open. I'll say a little bit more about that. But he is honest with them and sin needed to be confessed and declared. And I think, just very briefly here, I think that we need to recognize that. We need to recognize absolute honesty with God in our relationship. Don't try and pretend with God that we're not as bad as we are. Don't try and hide from Him that we need His forgiveness. Don't live a life of spiritual pretense. Be honest with Him. He's honest with us. Recognize that we are more sinful than we ever imagined, but more loved than we ever deserved. And recognize that. And confess sin. When was the last time that we elucidated, listed, discussed, spoke about our sins before God? And and not just gave the the general uh, coverall at the end of our prayers, forgive me for all my sins, amen, which doesn't really mean anything. 
But when we recognize the dirt and the uncleanness and the greed and the bitterness and the lust and all these things, and we, we named them and shamed them before Him because we know He knows and because we know He came in an absolutely honest relationship to deal with these things. Let us not try and be hypocrites. Let us not try and pull the wool over God's eyes. We may try it with one another. Ministers may try it with His people. People may try it with one another and with their minister. But let us not try it with God. And indeed, let's not try it with one another. So there's this great atonement uh, seat. There's this great holy of holies, which in itself uh, is a massive area. But there was also this table in this section, verses 23 to 30. I'm not going to say much about this table other than uh, it had on it the bread of the presence. And that a visual constant reminder to them again of God's provision of life. The bread of life is uh, what we often recognize and see and know as as a description of God being the giver of these basic realities that we have in life. They had it in the manna, the physical feeding of God, the provision of God in the manna as they made their way towards the promised land. It would be a land flowing, not just with bread, but with milk and honey. It was a great provision He was making for them. And uh, there was this tangible recognition that He is the provider of our uh, satisfier of our appetites, both in uh, nature and also by grace. Reflected even uh, in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, the bread of His presence, the bread of humble gratitude. And of course, we can spiritually apply this provision to Jesus Himself, bread of the presence, and Jesus taking Uh, upon himself uh, this great claim uh, to be the bread of life in John uh, chapter 6 and verses 32 and 33. We might just uh, look up that, uh, John chapter 6 in verse 32. I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who gives life to the world. Sir, they said, now give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes me will never thirst. So there's there's so many links even in the life and ministry of Jesus, straight back to Moses, that you can't just say, oh, Exodus is too hard a book, it's too dull a book, it's too disinteresting a book, because God in Christ often takes us back to these visual pictures to remind us of spiritual truth, and God is the one who is the bread of life, who provides for us the satisfaction that we need and are looking for in our lives. I wonder if you feel that that is true for you? Are you looking for your satisfaction elsewhere? And then there's the lampstand in Manoah that is described in verses 31 to the end of the chapter uh, in glorious terms. 
And this, this candelabra kind of uh, instrument that was there uh, was to be their light. Uh, the branches of it were to be reminder, a reminder to them of uh, fruitfulness and of uh, the fruitfulness of being in God and in the vine that, that he was the core, the center of their lives, their life and uh, their light people could see. Very visual. People could see the table with the bread on it. They knew about the atonement cover. Um, They had that in their imagination. It was behind the curtain. And now they had this lampstand which talked about his leading, just as the light had led them out of Egypt, the pillar of uh, cloud and the pillar of fire, which was to lead them out of uh, Egypt. And Jesus himself again takes on the same imagery where he says, I am the light of life. Who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus takes these things and applies them to himself, and he is our light, and he gives us light, and he gives us life to the full. And we are to recognize that and see that and seek his Holy Spirit and know that the provision in the New Testament as he comes into our experience, is so much greater than these Old Testament believers had. Greater privilege, but again, as we sit here today, the significance of greater responsibility, as we have uh, all uh, been given so much from Jesus Christ. He is to be our guide. He is to be the one that we look to for direction. He is to be the one who leads us in our lives. Not just that we come to worship him for an hour on a Sunday, but that he is the light of our life, that he is the one that when we are in darkness, we put our hands in his to be guided, that he is our Lord and he is our sovereign with whom we communicate, with whom we are in a relationship, who is with us and in whom we trust. So can I just say three very brief things as we close as we think about the tabernacle um, very loosely in the light of the New Testament and in the light of our understanding of God. It speaks about... uh, Well, I'm sure it speaks about a lot more, but I'm just going to say it speaks about three things very briefly. It speaks about separation. A lot of the Old Testament is expressing the separation of God. He's one. He's God. And he's separate because he is holy. In a way, we haven't even begun to grasp. And much of the detail and much of the intricacy of entering into God's presence, as it was in the Old Testament, was to get across the message that he is holy. And that if we treated him the wrong way, if we ignored his direction, we would die. And so people died when they forgot and didn't recognize his holiness. There was lots of curtains, lots of covers, lots of walls, lots of barriers to his access, physical things that stopped people drifting into his presence because he was holy. And the high priest who represented God's people had an elaborate journey once a year into his presence. He was a holy God. Holy God. Now, Jesus changes 
that access for us, as we've read in Matthew, with the curtain being opened. He made access free and full. We can enter Jesus' presence. But God forbid that Jesus is just our cuddly friend that we think we can do anything with and be careless about how we live in his presence because, well, he's paid the price. The access is open. It's not like the God of the Old Testament. But remember what it cost him to say it is finished. Remember that there's this amazing Trinitarian movement from God out of the holy of holies, as it were, through the person of Jesus into humanity and then through his spirit into our hearts. But that that is costly. And God forbid we stick our fingers heavenward and say, I can live any way because the price has been paid. And sin doesn't matter anymore. And my heart has been cleansed by God, so I'm free to live as I wish. The difference is that the motivation for us is delight and gratitude for what Jesus has done. And a recognition. When the Old Testament is so full of of his holiness that he was willing to go to this great extreme to get rid of the dirt and the uh, uncleanness that separates us from him in himself. If only we could grasp what it was for Christ to be the sin bearer. Could I be as risky as to say we would never sin again if we could truly understand what it cost him, how much it cost him to set us free we, I think, would certainly never again sin high-handedly. doesn't matter. We'll go our own way. So there's this great reality that uh, Jesus Christ, yes, has made the access to God full and free. We can enter his presence anytime. We don't need another representative. Jesus is ours. The way is open. He longs to hear us. He loves our prayers. He wants us in relationship. He looks at us and sees someone perfectly holy, covered in the righteousness of Christ. But it doesn't mean we can walk in the gutter. It doesn't mean we can treat sin lightly because he's paid for it. It means we love him for what he's done. And we seek by his grace and by the power of his spirit to walk holy because he is holy. I am holy, therefore be ye holy. So it does speak about separation and and yet glorious uh, friendship. I think it also speaks very powerfully of opulence. The Old Testament is full of gold and acacia wood and marvelous, uh, opulent um, buildings and expensive decoration. You think it was was far too ornate. What's it all about? It was teaching the people visually about this God, God as king, God as creator, God who is valuable, you see. They valued gold. Well, we saw how quickly they valued gold. How quickly they made a golden calf. A few chapters later, they valued these things. And God wanted them to know how valuable he was. You know, later on in the New Testament, he says, well, you're spending 
a lot of money in your paneled houses. And you're making your houses lovely, but my house, he says, is just a wreck. Now, we've moved from that. This isn't the house of God anymore. The temple is our bodies. The temple is the people. But we recognize and know we have to treat this temple, this body, well. We have to remember that the Holy Spirit resides in us. And as a people, we recognize that. And as a church, we recognize that He is worthy. And the opulence is because He is worthy. He's extravagant. Nothing is too great for Him. Nothing from our pockets, nothing from our gifts, nothing from our characters, nothing from our time. He is worth it. Brunsfield people, He's worth it to start a new church in His name and for His glory. He's worth the time and the effort it will take. Since these people, He will be worth the time to evangelize and share the gospel and fill these pews again. He's worth it. He is worthy. He's the most worthy being in the universe. And Uh, nothing is too great for him. Nothing we can give is too uh, amazing. God is worthy. We live in a day when God is dragged through the gutter daily. He's a small, tiny, uh, insignificant God. He's a God who's like a puppet. He's a God who's people don't care about. He's a God who's open to abuse at every level. He's a God who's in the dock. And we mustn't go down that road. We must recognize him and we must worship him as worthy and remind ourselves of the spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. And the last thing, very briefly, is uh, that we can take, and, and as I say, there's much more, is detail. If you've ever read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, huge amount of detail, tiny detail, given by God to Moses. Amazing. These chapters that we read, given by God, the God of the universe, given to Moses to be followed absolutely, completely, and directly. He's a God of detail. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews over the next number of weeks, uh, oh, months even, maybe. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, we have this. For God did, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven himself, now to appear before God's presence. And he's talking there about the fact that there is a heavenly temple of which the earthly temple is symbolic and has parallels. It's reflecting something much more real and much better. Hence the detail. And also because he's a God of the detail. This is the living God, and he's interested in centimeters and inches. He's interested in the tiny little uh, gold ornamentations. Why? Well, because he's the creator. And why? Because he's not just uh, the broad sweep creator who wound up this world and has left it to run. And he's not just interested in the big life decisions of your life. He's interested in the minutiae. And he can cope with it. Don't go into God's presence and say, well, I don't know if I can talk to him about that. I don't know, God's not going to be, how can God be interested in these things? It's the God of the detail. Speak to him about the detail. Speak to him about the small things of your life. Don't think God isn't interested in the small things of your life. 
Don't think he only cares about the major issues. He cares about the small things that burden you and that worry you and concern you because he's the God of the details. Remember that. And pray to him on that basis. And remember that there is a home, a real home, that he's preparing for you. Bear that in mind and have that perspective. Don't think life is simply for today. Remember there is a future in him, something better, something real, something where he will be with us in his presence in a remarkable way where he will tabernacle with us forever. Good place. Like a wedding. Forever. A place of celebration, of unity, of family, of love, of exploration, of growing, of rejoicing. Where there will be no more tears in his presence forever. The Lord's Day reminds us of that perspective. Don't simply live for today, but live with that perspective. And may God bless what we're trying to do here as we think forward to that day and want others to share in that great day because he is a holy God. And if people don't come to his peace through Jesus Christ, they will not be there. Your friends and your family and your loved ones and our neighbors in Morningside Road and our neighbors in Newington and neighbors in the workplace and our fellow students and our family members will not be there if they don't come to make their peace with Jesus Christ because God is a holy God. And unless we are covered in his righteousness, there will be no covering for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask and pray that you would bless your word to us. May days like this be days that equip us, that excite us, that remind us that uh, what seems maybe irrelevant in the Old Testament is hugely significant, given to God's people to point forward to the coming of Jesus and also to the nature and character of God. And remind us that the sacrifice of Jesus is not a theoretical, theological point of interest to be debated, but is a matter of life and death that transforms our day-to-day living and will transform how we rise from our bed tomorrow and will transform how we speak to our neighbor and how we respond to an argument and how we react when people frustrate us and will feed and will engage our prayer life and will grant us the priority of prayer and will remind us of the significance of what we have. Not some kind of insurance policy that we put at the bottom drawer and only take out once a year when it needs renewed, but day-to-day has no significance, but is a living, vibrant, sacrificial grace-filled relationship that is growing each day because of what Jesus has done. So help us, God. Bless the remainder of this day that we have together, a day of rest, a day we can set apart for fellowship and friendship and worship. Bless uh, Steve as he comes this evening. We thank you for him. We thank you for his willingness to take time out of his schedule to preach in this little church. And we pray that he would be blessed as he does so and we would be blessed. And uh, we thank you.
for the fellowship and friendship that we share uh, with his companions and his friends here today. So continue with us as we close in uh, worship by singing praise for the glory will be yours. Amen.